We're in Second Peter chapter 1, and today we'll be in verses 8 through whatever we get through, all right? But 8 through 11 is our text. Um, just to kind of review here on the book of Second Peter, the first chapter here is addressed to saved people. And telling us about our personal relationship with the Lord and trying to build that up. When you get to chapter 2, it tells about the things that are going to be going on in the world in which you and I live. Until Jesus comes back. And so chapter 1 is preparing you for chapter 2. Now chapter 3, we'll get into the future things of the end of the world and so forth like that. But right now... The Lord is trying to prepare us so we can do what we ought to do in chapter 2. And we'll have compassion for those souls that may be lost that we read about in chapter 3. So, uh, again, the whole book works together as one. Now, you also have in your bulletin a little sheet of paper that's blank. It says sermon notes. And that's what it's for. So you may have some things that you may want to write down today, some passages and things like that as we go along. But Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, <clears throat> excuse me, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just stop there and go back up to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See, growing in that knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason you do that is because it brings a peace and, and the grace of God upon you, regardless of what your circumstances are in life. Circumstances may not be what people call good circumstances, and yet you can have peace through it all. That's the great thing about our relationship with him. All right, now look in verse 9. He says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance may be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, shall we pray? Father, we want to preach a word just as it is to men as they are. Speak the truth in love, but nevertheless not water it down, because to water down the truth would be a sin against the love of God, let alone the love that we should have for souls. So, Father, I pray that each one now will see that I'm only the messenger and this is a personal thing between you and each person in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. When we start out this chapter, we looked at Jesus as our Savior and He's the Savior of all who receive Him as their Lord. Now, you and I got saved the same way the Apostle Paul Peter, and all those guys that we read about in the Bible, we get saved the same way they got saved. That is through Jesus Christ. Okay, not our works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. 
That's the only way anyone is saved, regardless of how good a person they were before salvation or how bad a person they were before salvation. The great thing is, as our song was sung today, whosoever will may come. Next, we've seen after that all the work that Jesus did for us on the cross for our salvation. You do not work for your salvation. Christ Jesus paid it all. That's a great thing. Isn't it great to, you know, I, I would never have peace if I had to work for my salvation because I would never know if I'd done enough. And to be quite honest with you, we can't do enough. The payment Jesus made on the cross was the payment. It wasn't just paying for sin's penalty, having the outpoured wrath of God upon his human spirit. That's not all of it. After all that happened, he rose up from the dead. Emmanuel, God with us. And when you think about that, think of this. Emmanuel, God with us. We call him the 100% God, 100% man. As a man, he died on the cross for every sin you or I ever have or ever will commit. At the time he died, none of us had sinned yet. But he died for every sin you or I ever would commit. He was buried and three days later he rose up from the dead. Understand, as a man he paid it all. As God, he rose up from the dead. The resurrection is just as important as the crucifixion because that's our guarantee to eternal life. So praise the Lord for the resurrection. And I'm glad that he rose from the dead. It's said that the disciples preached as much about the resurrection as they did the cross. And it was the amazing thing because they saw it. They saw it. So when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize, John 1, 12, but as many, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. By receiving Christ as your Savior, you become his. You turn to him in repentance and faith, turning from yourself and anything else we've lived for, to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Lord and Savior. But we realize that as we do, He is head, and we are subjecting ourselves to Him. But He's a loving head, and He wants to present His bride to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Understand the commitment that you make when receiving Christ, you're making a commitment that is no less important. And no less the strength of a marital vow and commitment to one another. That day you got married and you made those promises before God and man. When you said, I do, you knew that you were married. And that is the same promise that we have in Christ Jesus. When we received him as Savior, we were entering into that relationship just like you entered into the relationship of marriage. That's where we are if you're saved. excuse me, after you're saved by God's grace, through faith, in his finished work, of paying for all your sin for all time, you then are betrothed to him. Back in the Bible days, when a 
bride and groom got betrothed, they, and I'm going to get this, I rarely do this, but I'm going to get this now because for some reason or another, I'm fighting something up here. But um, when, when they got betrothed in the Bible, it was the same as being married. But the husband and wife didn't come together. He would go off and prepare a place for them. They'd have an appointed time, but he'd come back. When he'd come back, he would take her unto himself and take her away to that place. And there's a whole lot more to say on that. But what I'm saying is, is that to break that betrothal, it took a writing of divorcement. Today, we look at it as being engaged. People, if they're engaged and they break it off, there's no divorce or anything like that. But in that day, that's, the, that's how serious it is. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you're at that place of betrothal. He will not ever divorce you, and you can't divorce him. Okay? So that's the great thing about it. But as one of his betrothed, you have a personal responsibility to add things that are in verses 5 through 7 to your life. To this faith that brought your salvation. Because your work <clears throat> was not a work. It was an action. You acted in faith. Okay? Faith. God did all the work through his son Jesus Christ. He was died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. Now yours is faith in that. And that's where you start and that's where it begins, that relationship. Faith is the marital vow when you've acted on that faith. But then, as his bride, you build upon that. Now, as we've said before, there are good marriages, average marriages, bad marriages. You can be a good bride, an average bride, or you can be a bad bride. That's up to you. It's up to you. If you're saved, that's up to you. But verses 5 through 7 are things that said to add to your marriage, add to your faith, add to that to build up in the faith of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we look at those things, uh, we call this the future factors uh, are seen in adding these things because it's your personal responsibility and it builds up for your uh, future in eternity. So those things that are in verses 5 through 7 are the things that we, you and I, have a personal responsibility to add to saving faith. All right? Look at the first thing, virtue. Virtue is moral excellence with courage. The idea is that it endures... No matter what, it endures in moral excellence. No matter what's happening to you, no matter what's coming into your life, you endure in moral excellence. Now, you think of a world that has gone mad. A world that is very immoral in its ways and, and in its various practices. The things that it does, that's the world. But that should not be us. For a Christian, he is to have and she is to have virtue. That is, again, that moral excellence with courage. Corrupt practices are the fruit and the product of living by corrupt and worldly principles instead of biblical principles. As people of God, you and I are required to live by this word of God. 
by this word, you and I are going to be judged. And so we need to live by this word. And so we look at this world. The great thing is, whosoever will may come. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where it goes through a litany of, of things there, of, of homosexuals, of, of, of adulterers, fornicators, which would be sexual sins of any kind, talks about uh, the, the idea of drunkenness, talks about really of a whole lot of things there that are just bad in our sight, evil. We as Christians say that is evil. And his response is simply this. He saved them and he says, such were some of you. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things are become new. God can change those kind of people. And you and I as Christians have to believe that so that God can work through us to, change, to bring the gospel to them, to give them that same hope that you and I have. God can save their soul. And so, we need to add these things. This includes honesty in all of our areas of life, in our business dealings, in our ethics. It is virtue that stays courageously moral as according to the standard of the Word of God. Now, we're to add to this knowledge. Knowledge. This is the knowledge of God's person and God's word. This is the thing that helps us then uh, when we're faced with something new in life. You say, what do you mean? Well, years ago, they came out with, you know, the best thing to do now for a bad heart is to drink six ounces of, of alcoholic beverage, of beer, something like that. And they came out with that. And some Christians were kind of... Should I do this or do it or not do it? And people who knew the holiness of God said, I don't care if that'll help, I won't do it. Later, see this is the test of our faith. You know God is holy so God wouldn't do that. The test of your faith is simply this. The Lord later comes out and, and has one of the male brothers, the original male brother says, there's nothing that alcohol can do for you that we don't already have a medication that can do the same thing and will not run the risk of you becoming addicted to the alcohol. Now, you think of that. And so you go by the person of God. You get to know his person and you get to know his word. Grow in the knowledge of God and it will protect you from so many things. Now, the next thing that we see after, uh, after knowledge is temperance. Temperance, we've told you uh, a few sermons ago, temperance is not doing what you're not supposed to do, and it is doing what you are supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. That is temperance. If you have a moral excellence and a knowledge of God, <clears throat> then you can be Temperate, you can have that self-control that you can act not in the work of the flesh, but in the power of walking in the Spirit. You can do it in power, not in weakness. And that brings us to the very next thing that is listed there in verses 5 through 7, patience. Somebody gave me a note a few weeks ago. It said, Lord, give me patience, not strength. 
if you give me strength, I'll need bail money. <laughs> okay. And so um, we need we need patience. But the Lord gives you strength to do right with patience. All right. Patience in all of its forms meant to abide under a load. You've been saved by faith, my friend. Therefore, you have the very Holy Ghost of God living within you to be the strength that you need to abide under that load. See, sometimes we're praying, Lord, take this off of me, take this off of me, take this off of me. And it's not God's will. Paul prayed three times in 2 Corinthians 12, Lord, remove this thorn in the flesh from me. The Lord's answer, and the Lord answered his prayer. He said, no. That was the Lord's answer. He says, my strength is sufficient. Sometimes the Lord wants you to have the shoulders to bear it. But he will not give you a load that you cannot bear if you walk with him. If you stop walking with him, you will fall beneath the load. But if you'll walk with him, you'll know that he fully supplies and meets the need that you have in your heart and life. So again, you're saved by faith. You have virtuous uh, uh, character. You've grown in the knowledge of God. You've learned to do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, not do what you're not supposed to do. Then you'll have the patience, that courage in trials and tribulations and the various troubles that come into your life to not only to stand, but to withstand the attacks of the devil telling you, well, didn't God let you down now? No, he trusted you. And the reason you do that is because you have a focus, a spiritual inner man focus on eternity. If you'll keep that focus on eternity, you'll find that God will uh, be your strength in time of need. Now, you add to patience godliness. That's the fifth inner man principle that you and I have a personal responsibility as saved people to add to our life is godliness. That inner man principle that's made manifest in our daily lives. See, holiness should become a part of who you are. Holiness is not just something that you do or something you did. Holiness is your person. You've so surrendered yourself to the Lord that when holiness is a part of your person, that when those suddenlies of life hit you, you respond in a godly, in a holy way. And so again, as we look at this, in, in adding godliness to our lives, we see that uh, we grow in Him. We grow in the knowledge of Him. And then we will not be ashamed at His appearing. Rather, we'll be confident. When godliness becomes real and dominant in your life, then you'll be like Him. But understand, godliness is just like Christian. Godly means godlike. That's God-likeness. Christian is Christ-likeness. There will never, never be a contradiction between the two. And so, when you think of it from that vantage point, I 
am a child of God. Because I am saved by God's grace. But I don't want to be a saved man that is not godly and Christian. I believe there are many people that are saved that are not godly, that are not Christian. Because Christian doesn't mean saved. Christian means Christ-like. I'm saved from the penalty of my sin. I'm saved from the power of sin. But I'm not saved from that old nature that is still in me. I'm going to put it off one day, yes. When I caught up to be with him. But it's still there. And so godliness. I have a choice between this old nature or walking in the spirit. Walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. If I walk in the spirit, then that old nature will not have victory over me. So godliness, the inner man, I can be confident because I am walking with him. You look back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, as obedient children, not fashioning, not emulating other words, not fashioning yourselves according to the uh, your um, former lust in your ignorance. You were saved from that life of sin in its penalty and in its power. So don't try to go back and incorporate it into your Christian life. Because if you do, your life is not Christian. It's just saved so as by fire. And there's a great difference. There's a great difference. But he says, be ye holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. As a matter of fact, he said to be holy in all manner of conversation, in all the ways that you live, he said to be holy. Now, if these things are truly in you and abound, then the next thing you'll do is manifest brotherly kindness. This is a person like Barnabas that takes a guy named Saul who is going around killing people, killing them because they were meeting in churches, Dragging them off, having them beaten, taking their belongings from their homes. Take a man like Saul that received Christ as his Savior and take him in to the other disciples who are scared to death of the guy. Say, hey, this guy's saved now. If we believe that Jesus made a change in us, he'll make it, he's made a change in him because he was saved by the same blood that you and I were saved by. And they received him because here was a Peter, uh, here was a Barnabas that had a, uh, that idea of brotherly kindness and would bring him in. He saw a spiritual need. He sought for restoration. He sought to meet the need that he has. And that's what we do. When we have brotherly kindness, we see that people have, do have needs. Sometimes there are what we call the carnal needs for food and things like that. But other times it's forgiveness. Too many Christians. Too many Christians. And by the way, one would be too many. If you claim to be saved, one would be too many. But too many are going to the internet. They find something on someone. And they spread it around to others. Beware of that guy. Beware of that lady. Beware of that person. Because you know what? We found this in their past. Many times it was only accused. It was never proven. But hey, they're going to go around and spread it to other people. That person 
lacks brotherly kindness, is backslid and needs to get right with God and get saved if they're not saved. They're only religious. You see, when you start looking to do the opposite of brotherly kindness, you simply are not walking in the Spirit. Now, to watch, yes. But look, if a guy has embezzled money from a company, he got arrested for it. He got charged for it. He was put in prison for it. And then later he is out. He's gotten right with God. Look, I'm going to accept him in full fellowship. Now, am I going to put him as a bookkeeper or something else? Taking up the money? No, I'm not going to put the, the temptation before him. But I'm going to love him. We're going to put him in a place and not keep throwing things back in his face. That's what Satan likes to do. Don't be Satan's helper. He doesn't need your help. Satan does not need your help. So just walk with God. Walk with God. Do God's will, God's way, and God's timing. And it works every time. And so, don't be that kind. Uh, it cannot be expected that he who is false to his God, that is ungodly, will be true to a friend, a brother in Christ. He will not have brotherly kindness. Now, this may be the biggest failure in the local churches uh, down through the ages in fellowship. Now, the word fellowship is a, member, is, is a partnership. You remember the Central Baptist Church? We're in a partnership. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says we're in a partnership, and together we're serving Christ. Love Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Do what you're supposed to do. And the last thing, then, would be charity. Use the Greek word agape. A benevolent love is the seventh thing to add to your saving faith. That word back in that day was used only of a God or the God. Christians used it as the Almighty God, our God. But some of the Greeks used it for their various gods. But it's only applied to God. God is only capable of the idea of loving with this kind of love. As a Christian, I'm supposed to love with that kind of love, but I'm only allowed, I can only do that as I allow God to love through me that way. So many people are quick to attack others instead of going to the person to say, is it true? If it was, is it still true? And you see, that is the reason Satan gets so many victories when a church should be bringing not just Ocala to the world, but around the world. Now, I'm not saying this is what's going on in our church. What I'm saying is this is what goes on in too many churches, and this is what goes on in the lives of Christians, and it spells defeat every, every, every time. And a Christian, somebody saved, has helped the devil. That is not good. That is not good. So what is then the opposite of that? Listen to this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass 
and a tinkling cymbal. Now, let me under, help you understand. Today, you and I say charity. We just think of giving to March of Dimes or something of that nature. No. This is a love for the soul to begin with. It's given out of God impression upon your heart. And it's because you're praying for fellow brother or sister in Christ. He says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. God calls you nothing, you're nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. <clears throat> Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity uh, boneth not itself. It is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Now, I read that from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. For a reason. And something I'm not going to do for you. If you really want to grow in the knowledge of God, you've got to actually do some things on your own. Look back in verses 5 through 7 of our text, 2 Peter chapter 1, and see how many of those things in verses 1 through 7, 1 Corinthians 13, actually apply. And then ask yourself, is this my testimony? Wow. You see, that's the way it's supposed to be, whether it is ours as a reality or not. Now, We find a few things about Jesus' promises. <clears throat> Revelation 3.20 is so often used for, or 3.19 I believe it is, but it's so often used for bringing unsaved souls to the Lord. Actually, the Lord is talking to Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Actually, that's addressed there to a local church talking to the believers in Laodicea, that local church, and saying, I'm knocking. Open the door. I want to come in. I want to sit down with you. The very God of the universe, the creator, the almighty, wants to come in and talk to me personally, to you. That's addressed to the saved people. Oh, he wants to do that. But understand, Jesus said in his earthly life, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, that's possession, hath everlasting life, and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. <clears throat> you know what? God does chasten his own. God chastens his own. He even spanks his own. As a matter of fact, it says 
in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, the Lord chastens those and he scourgeth. Scourgeth means to flog with the whip. Boy, I tell you what, what health and human services would have a whole, uh, failed field day there if they could. But that's what the Lord does. But it's his own. His own. Now I'm saying that to get you to this point. I'm obviously going to have to do the rest of this sermon next Sunday morning. So let me just get this one point to you. I wanted to lay this out to show by doing these things or not adding these things what happens in verses 9 through 11, 8 through 11. This morning I just preached to you the introduction, okay? But what I want to say to you is this. If you are living in sin, there's one of two things going to happen. God's going to make you feel guilty about it. He's going to rebuke you in your spirit, and you'll know it. And if that doesn't work, then the flogging comes. That's with the scourging with the whip. That's when it, it hits your health. As in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, for this reason, some are sickly and some sleep early. In other words, they died. Now, the good thing is, is this. It's both good and bad in one sense. It's good because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and no man can pluck them out of my hand. They shall never perish. No man can pluck them out of my hand. He said, my father which gave me them is greater than all. No man can pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now, that's great. I can't even pluck myself out of his hand. The day I received him, I was in his hand in a grip that I cannot break. But because I'm in that hand, he can also do that. And take me home early. Ashamed. Saved so as by fire. But. He says in Hebrews 12, 12, verses 6 through 8, if you're without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, in other words, all that are saved, he says, you're illegitimate. You're not saved. You're none of his. Are you 100% sure if you died today that heaven's your home? Did you say a prayer? You believe a fact, the same fact that the devils believe and tremble about? Or did you truly, honestly enter into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ? He said, Him that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But you're coming to him just like you would in making a marriage vow. Do you know if you died today that heaven's your home? Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's not through things men devise. It's through him alone. Do you know if you died today that heaven's your home? Let's bow our heads, please.